0: This is a 980 CKNW podcast. Welcome to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. Tonight we are talking about the impact COVID-19 has had on family planning with fertility specialist Dr. Neve Callan. The effect this pandemic has had on anxiety and other mental health issues is incredible. We talk with Angela Hurd, who is a clinical counselor. And finally, Dr. Gertie Parhar joins once again and answers your medical questions from long-term care facilities to slipstream, preventive health and more. And then I talk to you about things you can do to improve your sex life at midlife. And now for the podcast. Many people have had to put uh, a halt on their plans to start a family. What's it like living with fertility issues in a pandemic? Well, joining me on the line is fertility specialist and co-director at all of Fertility Center, Dr. Neve Tallon. Hello, Dr. Tallon. Hello. Good evening. How are you? This. I'm good. How are oh, you? Good. Good. We have just about a minute, and then I'm going to ask you to stay um, through the news, um, sure. and we'll talk a little bit further about it. Um, so, it's my understanding that the fertility clinics have, have all but shut down, um, leaving many people heartbroken, broken, and wondering what they're going to do as it relates to starting their families.
1: That's right. Um, I mean, we had to be very conscious and socially aware and do our part to really uphold the health and safety of all Canadians here, which is uh, how we ended up uh, slowing down services. And I should highlight that uh, we were still very much providing urgent care to patients. So uh, we were still able to support patients who had cancer and needed to freeze eggs and sperm over this time. Uh, and it just again, it just takes a, a pandemic to highlight the importance of what we do, um, and you know, again, recognizing that the core foundation of our society is family, and in this time, how important it is, and and then it really highlights the importance for patients who are struggling to do that on their own.
0: I, I do want to mention um, that Anderson Cooper had a baby uh, this weekend. A couple of of days ago, I guess baby's about four or five days old now. Yeah, last Monday. Yeah, last Monday, was it? Mm. (laughs) Um, Congratulations. I love Anderson Cooper, but anyway, (laughs) he's so nice. Um, uh, So he's had this baby by surrogate, which he's um, made public and uh, he's apparently close with the family and is grateful. And um, so uh, surrogacy, um, that's an issue. That's a Uh, an option that some people face uh, who want to start a family?
1: You bet. Um, In Canada, there's definitely a lack of uh, people that are willing to be uh, surrogates and part of that is due to the lack of funding available but also uh, due to a lack of an actual system to allow for compensation and that has to do with our laws in in Canada um, and the limitations over it's not just surrogacy it also pertains to um, being able to get eggs from a donor or sperm from a donor, as a consequence, there's a shortage of gametes um, in that way for for those patients who actually need them to start their families. So it was nice to see Anderson Cooper, um, you know, uh, put out a very personal statement uh, as to how grateful he was um, for his surrogate and what. Uh, she went through and helping him have his family. And so are you saying that uh, surrogacy is
0: not really a a viable option here in Canada for people who want to start a
1: family? No, it absolutely is a viable option. It's it's just that you need to find someone who is willing to be your surrogate. It's fairly much either you find someone who is willing to do it altruistically for you, um, and you're able to, you know, pay them for you know, taxable or medical expenses like maternity clothing or access to health care or being off work, all of those things. Um, but you cannot remunerate someone directly um, for being a surrogate, whereas in the U.S., you can't. Um, now, there are processes in place in Canada, but very limited. Um, and we do provide um, access and counselling within our clinics for patients who are looking at and certainly becoming more accessible, um, but it isn't as easy as perhaps it would be in the U.S.
0: And, and why is that? Why, why are the laws as uh, set out as such?
1: Um, I mean, the uh, the laws in Canada are really there to protect uh, women um, to be coerced financially to do, you know, to um, partake in these uh, practices. But at the same stage, it also uh, results in. Um, You know, a a restraint or uh, just having a shortage and people who thereby then are willing to do that, because obviously, if you were going to be a surrogate, it puts some constraints on your ability to uh, work the same way you normally would or carry on your life as you normally would. So it does require some kind of financial assistance in that regard. Um, and the same goes for, you know, providing sperm, uh, to some, to a family or a same sex couples who need sperm to start their family. You know, there are processes, um, through, uh, we, we, we have like a number of distributors in Ontario that we're able to access, but most of the donors really come from the U S because they're able to be paid through the U S.
0: Right. Uh, so what are some of the other issues? So the, the fertility clinics have pretty much shut down for people who were perhaps in the midst of going through hormone treatments or insemination. Uh, is this what has gone on? What are, what are some of the issues with closing down these clinics?
1: So um, the response of clinics is really um, as a consequence of was what was happening socially around us and with the pandemic and our governing body had put out a statement stating that they felt no new treatment cycles should be started. Um, And so within there, we did have patients who were uh, in the middle of fertility treatment and we did support them till the end of that treatment without resumption of new cases. Um, Some clinics were unable to do that given the volume of patients at that time perhaps was greater and Every clinic had to look at the number of staff they had, how many people were ill from their staff, were they able to continue supporting their the patients at that time. So there were a number of factors, but at a core, what um, really was the the impetus to put this out was, you know, being socially responsible and being ensuring the safety of staff and patients alike um, against acquiring COVID at the time where we were, you know, what looked like an upswing on the curve. Um, at that time. Um, looking back, it seems as if in BC anyways, we acted appropriately in time to be ahead of that and um, were able to maintain a flatter curve. But not that was not the case for everywhere in Canada.
0: And what's the outlook for fertility clinics opening up again? Yeah. And, and how are they going to have to change their practices? I know we're going to have to change our practices in my clinic. There's five or six physicians plus myself in there and patients coming in all the time. And it's not not going to be the same. No,
1: it's not like flipping a switch and going back to how life worked before it by any means. And just being really aware um, moving forward. We're being fairly cautious in how we move forward. We have everything we need to be safe for both staff and our patients. Um, But we've taken a lot of time to prepare for that. So ensuring that you have personal protective equipment and enough supplies being able to schedule patients over the course of a day and have enough time so that they're socially distanced and we're still able to minimize face-to-face interactions. Um, And where possible, we'll continue to do virtual telehealth appointments to minimize uh, that face-to-face interaction. And all of this is, again, you know, to decrease the likelihood of a second wave and uh, find ourselves back, you know, where we were a few weeks ago. We want to minimize the likelihood of that happening. So part of that is going to be resumption of services in a very controlled way and starting slowly at first, which is a little anxiety provoking for uh, patients who feel Already that they don't have enough time and that um, every week that goes by, they should be able to move forward. And we're really trying to facilitate everybody's need to to move forward. And, And we're lucky in that we are able to, to some degree, control and schedule patients' treatment cycles.
0: Right. And so do you think you'll be opening up in the next month or two or getting back to
1: business? Yeah, we are planning to be open um, in early May and we're in a limited capacity. Um, Again, there's some unknowns about pregnancy and COVID. So we're not really sure um, because there just isn't a lot of um, available evidence out there, even from places like New York where pregnant women um, had infection. We're just not really sure of you know, what COVID does to a um, pregnant woman, either to her herself or her likelihood of being susceptible to COVID or the risks to that growing pregnancy. It looks like maybe preterm delivery is um, a higher likelihood, Um, but we really don't know as to the long-term consequences of being sick and pregnant at that time. So, um, the cautiousness is uh, right now that we're moving forward with is we're going to facilitate patients to you know continue with treatment and for until we know a little bit more, we're planning on uh, freezing embryos, um, not actively trying to attain pregnancies. But if it looks as if uh, the overall incidence of infection continues to be low, well then with some counseling of patients and if they feel that it's you know worth moving ahead, we may be facilitating pregnancies. Uh, like with frozen embryo transfer, intrauterine insemination in the co- upcoming weeks.
0: Excellent. Well, thank you so much. And I wish you the best of luck. And I think other clinics and even workplaces can learn from you know your planning, your preparation, your PPE uh, procurement. Um, there's so much that everybody needs to do. And hopefully people are out there planning to get their businesses back up and running. Thank you so much, Dr. Neve Talon, infertility specialist and co-director of Olive Fertility Center in British Columbia me on the line is registered clinical counselor here to answer your questions about stress, anxiety, isolation, loneliness, and how to be in a couple when you're together all the time. Angela Hurd joins me on the line. Good evening, Angela. Hi, Maureen. Thanks for having me on your show tonight. Oh, well, thanks for joining me. And if anyone has a question out there, um, the number to call is 1-877-399-9898. That's 1-877-399-9898. And uh, I don't imagine a lot of people are going to be calling in with their anxiety because, first of all, it's denial denial's a drug, and a lot of people don't like to admit they have anxiety. Um, but let's assume a lot of people do because it is the number one mental health issue in North America. America. So, Angela, what uh, what are some of the things that people can face when they are anxious in this pandemic? What are some of the of the concerns they might have, or some of the physical issues or emotional issues?
2: Well, one of the things that can come up for people um, that's pretty obvious is their sleep can get disturbed, and that's kind of a cyclical experience because once you stop sleeping really soundly and feeling rested in the morning, everything from there on can Feel a little bit worse, harder to cope with. So, sleep is one of the big things, um, and it impacts parenting and communication and trying to find solutions to things.
0: Uh, So, that's a big one sleep. It is, and you know, people aren't as busy as they were before. And I mean, I I myself have to intentionally do a two hour hike or go paddleboarding or um, ride my bike for 20 kilometers every day, um, you know, and uh, to to stay active. And so that I, in part, so that I can sleep at night.
2: Yeah, exactly. So that is a really big point, um, is to stay active and to get outside and to not um, stay with the isolation in your house, um, uh, not doing anything. You need to find uh, new hobbies uh, maybe in your home that you've been thinking about but never gotten to, and uh, keeping your yourself busy so that you don't feel like you're um, uh, isolated. And there's lots of ways not to be isolated. Um, there's lots of online courses you can do. Um, there's great groups that are free that you can access right now that uh, were not available before, um, CMHA. BC, that's the Canadian Mental Health Association of BC, they've got a crisis line that you can call if you need to talk to somebody. Um, But they also have some online courses that are really great. They've got a bounce back program that if people are feeling uh, depressed or they're feeling down, uh, they've got a great course that's, that one's been running for a long while, but it's still available now. Um, And then they've got this mental health check-in that's free and people can just go on their computer and and, and check in just by looking and seeing how they're doing, looking at the at the questions and the results that come out from that. And it's not uh, a counselor that's um, telling them how they're doing. Uh, it's more about uh, how their results come up and, and it affirms maybe what they're feeling that they don't want to voice to somebody else yet. And so that often can help people to recognize maybe what's not working so well for them right now or what's stressed. Right, you mentioned something about people being isolated
0: and um you know I have some people in my life who are living on their own or like like my dog walker for example or and 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 no longer is my dog walker walking my dog mm-hmm. <laughs> we're walking the dog uh which we did anyway so it was a bit of a mix but uh but I consider her a friend as well and then I have another good friend she's on her own as well and you know these people haven't seen anybody for weeks 8 weeks and and so how important is it to you know, reach out, uh, make sure people are doing okay um, being alone.
2: Well, you know, your point about anxiety being one of the most um, impactful mental health issues that people have, it's very true. It's its one of the roots that can grow and, and lead to other things. And so recognizing anxiety is really important. And social supports, that's our number one uh, uh, factor that will help people's mental health or uh, keep people's mental wellness uh, strong. And so when we're isolated, it's going to have an impact on our mental health. We know that. It's it's the most significant factor. Exactly.
0: I have Catherine.
2: Oh, go ahead. Yeah, you go right ahead. I have Catherine on the line from Surrey. Hello,
0: Catherine.
3: Oh, hi. I was wondering, what is the healthy amount of vitamin D for a woman to take?
0: Uh, well, the recommendation is around four thousand international units daily. It's also a good idea to get out into the sun, and, and while you have it, <laughs> in British Columbia, <laughs> whenever you have it, is <laughs> a great source of vitamin D as well. So,
3: um, there are allergies, so you have to stay in a
0: lot. That's true. <laughs> you would have to take more. Would it is it dangerous to take more? I don't, I don't believe so, but it's probably a good idea just in case you're taking any medications to check with your um, physician, which you can easily do um, online these days, virtually, and just ask that question. Thank you, Marie. You're very welcome all right, carrying on with um, anxiety and uh, mental health issues and and being alone. How about couples? All of a sudden, you know, maybe before it was, um, you know, one was traveling for work or or busy at work. At least you're going out to work every day. You're not homeschooling the kids. And all of a sudden life has changed. There's three kids underfoot. You are educating a grade two, a grade five, and a grade (laughs) 11. (laughs) And then uh, you're both working from home as well. And uh, how can people navigate the stress associated with that?
2: Well, the number one thing is probably to take a deep breath and and try and be patient with yourself, compassionate with yourself as well as your partner. Um, they're probably feeling uh, challenged as you are. Uh, Communication is really important and being able to set a schedule up together, um, being able to... Map out your spaces, where your space is and your partner's space is. Um, when you are working from home, you know, that poses all sorts of challenges that you don't really realize until you're actually in your home. Voices carry and you didn't realize how your partner actually was at work, that you're maybe getting a, a, a visual and hearing them, what they're like, talking to their coworkers, Um so there's there's all sorts of things can come up with with working from home, and then sharing the different responsibilities. Who's going to take care of the kids um, when they're needing you if they're at home? Um, how do you segue? Who you know that balance of taking care of the home when you're both at home? Um, everything is kind of uh, scrambled, and it's looking at things new and trying to figure out what does it work? How does it work for you as a couple now? And having those conversations and being assertive with each other, saying, you know, I feel or I need um, so that, you know, the blame game doesn't start and um, you guys stay on the same team.
0: Right. And one may deal with it better than the other.
2: Yeah. Correct. Definitely. And their stressors might be different. Well, they they are going to be different because they're different people, but their assessment of their stressors could be very different and how they cope with stressors could be very different. So, you know, um, and that's something can find, you mentioned. You mentioned
0: coping, and lots of people are coping through quarantinis. <laughs> and other <laughs> alcoholic beverages, we're seeing yeah, long lineups um, yeah. at the liquor stores. An essential yeah. service, of course, uh, but it is actually it is uh, that's no joke. Uh, it is an essential service. Many people would suffer uh, alcohol withdrawal s- seizures, and and that can lead to death as well. So it's better to get your drinking under underway. But um, those are some of the healthy ways. Uh, that's not drinking is not necessarily one of the healthiest ways. But
2: yeah, and you know people. Uh, might notice that in loved ones when they're talking to them or even in their own home they might notice that those patterns start increasing that people are you know moving towards uh coping by taking a drink or um, using more often than they would normally and and it's okay to ask about how a person's doing.
0: And uh, once again, as he has joined me probably for the since we've been in lockdown, <laughs> Dr. Gurdi Parhar joins me on the line, which is awesome, uh, as usual, to have him because he clarifies uh, quite a bit um, about what's going on uh, with regard to this pandemic. Uh, if this is the first time that you are tuning in to my program. Aw, too bad. I've been on for eight years. (laughs) Oh, well, thanks. And the more the merrier. Uh, Dr. Gurdy Parhar is clinical professor at the University of British Columbia. He is treating patients on the front lines of this COVID-19 pandemic, and he is here to take your questions. And remember, the better they are, the more likely you are to win one of my two fabulous, personal, sensational massages from Floravi. Good evening, Dr. Parhar.
4: Good evening, Maureen. Uh, happy to be here in the lockdown with you to answer these questions. Uh, although I was a little a uh, little bit anxious that the m- opening music was Journey from 1981. I don't know if you're trying to age me, um, but uh, happy to be here nevertheless. It was one it of was, it was my favorite songs, uh, but let's say in high school as opposed to university.
0: We're on a journey here. We're all on this journey together, sort of. <laughs> Some have a better journey than others and uh and we must uh be aware of that uh in this pandemic so i first before we start talking uh dr Parhar and after I got through our messages which go on all week everything from hair dye to <laughs> blow drying hair to <laughs> Um, all of the other exchanges um, to get to the CDC's draft guidance for reopening amid coronavirus and what that includes. I want to thank George for sending me last week, in fact, this uh, World-O-Meter, which um, actually categorizes and tabulates the coronavirus cases and we have around the globe 3.566 million cases and we've had 248,286 deaths. Um, about 1.15 million people have recovered from this. So, this has had a significant impact on the world and on the globe and on the economy. And, um, and so it's a, it's a fine dance. It's a, it's an orchestra, really, that we need to put together in order to be able to open things up again from hairdresses, which I desperately need, to, um, nail salons. <laughs> which I need that too, um, to diet centres, and I need that as well. But first and foremost, Mary is on the line from Winnipeg. Good evening, Mary.
3: Good evening. Thanks for taking my call. Dr. Parhar, I would think that you would be one of the people advising your provincial government. In our province of Manitoba, the government has, in the case of one nursing home, and I'm assuming it's across the board, they've pulled out community doctors and the only doctors allowed to come are hospital doctors, only once a week, not for the whole day, and only for emergent uh, cases. Now, seniors are recognized as the most vulnerable group, and I'm not... Oh, and I should mention doctors teleconference every day about their their regular patients. I don't quite understand... That sort of system, because to me it leaves seniors uh, in a very vulnerable and precarious uh, situation, and maybe I'm wrong um, so um, your Mary, thank you. yeah, so Mary, thank you very much for your question i'm I'm just trying
4: to make sure I understand what you're asking. Did you say that um in your area, the physicians
3: are not attending um those residences as often as they should be? I'm saying the community doctors, ones who have their own practice, are not allowed into a nursing home. The only doctors allowed are two hospital doctors. Uh, on a daily basis, the patients, uh, the nurses have teleconferences about any illnesses of patients, and then it's just supplemented with uh weekly visits, one only one doctor per week for one day, not the whole day, to see emergent uh situations. I
4: understand. So, uh, a few thoughts. So, as a family physician, and that's the way I was trained, I really believe, in, and Maureen would agree with this in nursing as well, we believe in what we call longitudinal care of of our patients, what we call the continuity of care, which is that patients' care is best when they are with the same healthcare provider for a long period of time that understand them well. So, if there is a community physician who is um, well-connected and understands the the resident's health, um, it makes the most sense that they would be the one that is attending to their health needs. Now, during a, a uh, pandemic like we're going through, there may be other factors at play, which is that they have to limit the number of people that go into the care facilities, and for that reason, maybe not all the community physicians um, can actually go in or access um, the, their, their patients and their residents, and so there may be some extra Rules and guidelines that are in place, but but I but I understand um, the, the tone of your question, which is that it makes sense that the patient, the physicians and the healthcare providers that know the patient's best stay connected with their patients. Absolutely, um, but if there are other sort of circumstances that are going on in that health authority. That would, that would be sort of specific to what the needs of that health authority are.
0: And it's not exclusively um, the physician's lack of access to patients. It sounds like there are doctors that are going in there, but there's a number other of other contributing factors that have contributed to the issues, the, the COVID transmission in care facilities, such as care workers going from one care facility to another, lack of per- personal protective equipment, um, lack of infection Control. Um, so there's a number of issues that have caused uh, some of the really serious and tragic situations that have gone on in long-term care facilities across the country.
4: Absolutely, Marina. I think one of the things that this has highlighted is was our, was our extended care services, um, within, um, nursing homes and seniors facilities, were they, were they, were they adequate in the first place? Were we paying our care providers properly? Were the care providers getting appropriate treatment and appropriate equipment? And when there's a crisis like what we have in this COVID pandemic has just brought to light a lot of other, um, um, inadequate, um, um, provisions of care that were already there.
0: And, and many of those care workers who have a minimum wage to begin with, and, and where we've illuminated the fact that they should get a significant raise, um, also don't have sick. Pay, And so they, if they were sick, they might be afraid to phone in sick for fear that they might lose their job or, or that they couldn't afford not to be paid. And so that's another contributing factor to the transmission of this virus. So, Absolutely. I mean, I think at the end of the day, we're going to need to dissect all of those issues and make major changes to how um, the seniors and elderly are cared for in our country.
4: Absolutely. And I think a lot of people have said there's actually two or three sort of pandemics going on in our communities. What's in the community, what's in the hospital setting, and what's going going on in our extended care facilities.
0: Absolutely. Mary, thank you so much for the question. If you'd like to be entered into my contest, feel free to leave your email and um, um, I'll notify you if you win. Okay? I'd appreciate it. Oh, wonderful. Okay, just leave it with Brendan. Okay, and if you have a question, one 399 9898 That's one 399 9898 I don't know if you were listening earlier, Dr. Parhar, but... Um, I think it was Bob who called in (laughs) comparing the US to Canada. And um, so, one of the things about the US is that lack of um, healthcare. They don't have a universal healthcare system. And so, in addition to people living, you know, many people living in a small apartment, especially in multi generational in New York City, um, many of those people have comorbidities. And and hypertension seems to be a big risk factor for those who um, are. Um, infected with, with uh, COVID-19 and, and other comorbidities as well, like diabetes type 2. You know, how important is preventive health uh, as it relates to uh, COVID-19? Because I, I believe that was another contributing factor to the exorbitant numbers we have seen in the U.S.,
4: Absolutely, Maureen. So one of the things that we understand is that people who have, we've talked about the older population, definitely they're at increased risk, but any chronic disease, um, heart disease, lung disease, lung disease, we're talking about COPD, um, that's emphysema and chronic bronchitis, asthma, but also things like hypertension, diabetes um, and obesity. Maureen, you and I have talked about this on on the show before. Um, All those are um, putting people at higher risk for COVID-19 sort of serious consequences. And we know that that um, there are populations, not just in the U.S., but also in Canada. But the other thing that you've highlighted is, and I was talking to somebody else about this today, is that, um, you know, at the end of the day, if you have to pay for your COVID-19 test, you um, and I'm just going to make up a number, it costs 25 to 50 to $75 and you don't have that money to, to, to go for that test, are you going to pay for the test or are you going to pay for food or are you going to pay for clothing or something else? And so absolutely if you don't have easy and accessible healthcare um, resources then are you less likely to be tested. And I think one of, the, one of the things in addition to what I just said about extended care facilities is it's highlighting the inequities in our healthcare system for people that are more vulnerable. and we know certainly that um, people that are poor, people that don't have um, sustainable housing, sustainable food, um, a lot of ethnic groups, and in the U.S. particularly, um, um, African Americans and Latino Americans um, are are, are at higher risk, um, definitely. And and there's a lot of um, compounding factors there around education and poverty.
0: And I have Cam on the line from Coquitlam, British Columbia. Good evening, Cam.
5: Good evening. Um, I've just got a question about uh, working out. So in Coquitlam, we have a, a thing called the Coquitlam Crunch, and it's a a, a very steep, step-oriented the workout that you do. Um, they're they're keeping people six feet apart, but with the increased weather and the grind, that's going to be open up. When you're breathing extremely heavy, you know, say like 150 beats per minute or something like that, uh, and you got the wind, is that an increased factor to getting the uh, the virus like in a in a Certain area, does it transfer a lot quicker in that situation?
0: Can I just ask a question? Is the Coquitlam Crunch outdoors or indoors?
5: It's outdoors. Oh. It's a fair based uh, hike that goes up and uh, okay. it's been open and they got people that are manning it. It's been great. I just wanted to know whether, like, say, with the grind opening up, which is a, a metro park, right? Right. Um, that'll be open, whereas uh, provincial parks are closed. Right. Um, but There is, I mean, the grind gets quite a significant amount of people, and I've been doing it three, four times a week, you know, up and down, up and down to get the workout. The gross grind. Yeah, kind of wondering if, you know, I breathe pretty hard doing that. Yeah. Am I going to be a transmitter if I do have it? to a point of certain distance, or is it gonna be
4: increased? So Maureen, another brilliant question. Um, so absolutely, first of all, I think the Coquitlam crunch is something that my abdominal muscles could benefit from, just from the sounds of it. I'm heading um, out the,
0: there uh, tomorrow.
4: <laughs> I, I know, I think I'm gonna be a lot better if I did it. But in, <laughs> but in fairness, Maureen, you, you, you already hit it on the head, which is that normally we say a two meter distance when you're um, out, in, out in the public. So that's two meters, because we think that's how far respiratory droplets can go. But here's the catch the slipstream, which is um, where the droplets are around you, um, we think that slipstream or that pocket of air travels with you. So what researchers have recommended, and these are these are studies done on not viruses, but the air pockets that are around people. So the recommendation is that walkers should stay at least 4 to 5 metres behind the person ahead of them. If you're running or a slow cyclist, I'm a slow cyclist, um, should keep a 10-metre distance from somebody else. And if you're a fast cyclist, 20 metres. So crunch is that if you can do the cockatum crunch and be four to five meters um, away from the person in front of you and four to five meters ahead of the person behind you but here's the other challenge is I'm guessing that when you go up and you come down you also can't be passing closely by the person, if you're that's going down as you're going up, if that makes sense. So there actually has to be a um, at least a two meter distance between the two of you if you're going in different directions, up and down the the crunch at the same time.
0: and also didn't it come out this week that if you're in nature, it's actually less likely that the disease will be transmitted?
4: Yes, and Dr. Henry's commented on that a lot. Is that um, as much as we're talking about the distances? Really, we're we're thinking that if there's um, airflow outside in, in, outside in the community and environmental space, that it's less less likely to transmit from one person the virus, less likely to transmit from one person to another, when, as opposed to say you're in an enclosed gymnasium, for, for instance. Yeah.
0: Awesome. So great questions. If you have a question, you can still. Call in one eight seven seven three nine nine ninety eight ninety eight. And um, so, opening up, we have about a minute left. Dr. Parhar, opening up as a physician, um, what do you see? I, have, of course, have lots of ideas. I've been working really hard on developing policies and procedures, ensuring that they've been implemented to a multidisciplinary team. Um, and over the last eight weeks, uh, wearing a mask myself, and a shield, and gowns, and gloves, you know, to ensure that there's no COVID that passes through the hallways of where I work and so far knock on wood so good but um we're gonna it's a- getting out into society is a totally different story so what do you think we need
4: a lot of discussion in both the U.S. and Canada about what, what about reopening and controversy about reopening too soon, but it's but it's really not that complicated. I mean, firstly, we have to make sure that there's enough testing, and even in BC now, even with the mildest symptoms, we're we're encouraging people to get tested. When somebody gets tested and they're positive, are we able to um, identify that case, trace that case? of the person who's um, testing positive. Two more things, because i got to let you go. <laughs> no, and, and are we able to um, respectably and responsibly isolate them?
0: But first and foremost, I have Lillian on the line from Angusville, Manitoba. Good evening, Lillian.
2: Good evening. I just wondered if you have any idea when we can see our loved ones in the care homes,
3: We come to the window, and uh, it's very sad when they break down, and they don't, my husband doesn't see well, doesn't
2: understand, and it's pretty, it's
3: getting hard on everybody, I understand, but any idea...
0: Unfortunately, I have no idea, but it's so heartbreaking. What I'm hoping is that there have, now that we've illuminated a lot of the issues that have gone on in long-term care facilities and care homes, that with the good weather, I'm not suggesting that the virus is going to go away. No, but perhaps uh, they can implement some strategies where some of the residents can come outside, uh, sit in a chair, perhaps six feet away from their loved ones. So at least it's not through a window, um, but maybe there are some creative ideas around that. Um, but I think uh, my my perception is that, uh, or feeling is that uh, it's going to take a little bit of time before um, th- before you can see your loved ones. But that said, I think loneliness is devastating, and it's a it's another public health issue that we need to look at. So it's definitely something that needs to be addressed as quickly as possible.
5: Gee, that would
2: be wonderful if they can bring them out and we can visit them there.
0: Wouldn't that be good? And maybe Home Depot can donate a whole bunch of, or another or <laughs> Rona or another... Um, <laughs> A store like that could donate some chairs to sit outside, patio chairs or something. You know, we all have to do our, our part here. But maybe make that as a suggestion um, to the long-term care facilities. But maybe sure. something can be set up. If they're going to be able to fly planes, certainly they should be able to allow us to see our loved ones in care facilities.
2: Okay you for answering my question you're
0: very welcome do you want to be entered into the contest if you do Uh, sure oh wonderful wonderful (laughs) that was a great question lillian i really appreciate it and if you want to be entered into the contest to um uh to win one of my fabulous prizes tonight which are a couple of personal massagers to help your sex life uh midlife or any time quite frankly uh Dahlia or the Floravi sex toys provide a sensational pleasure with its soft texture and curved or straight tips. There's a couple of choices tonight. Variety is the spice of life. Of course, at any time of life, uh, these sophisticated massages are water-resistant and can be used in the shower, which I imagine a lot... More people, couples are taking showers now because of COVID-19. <laughs> and so these can be used in the shower um, or you can always use it with Floravi's water-based lubricant. Um, so I have a couple of those and, and we have a couple of entries. And if you want to enter and give me a call with a great question, and you know what? All questions are great. The number to call is one 399 9898 You know, at midlife, a lot of people might start to take a look at themselves uh, and especially their sexuality because oftentimes sexuality can be changed at midlife. And one of the most common reasons that sexuality is changed is because of self-perception. At midlife, it's not uncommon for people to experience changes in weight or fitness. Oftentimes I I hear women who are entering the perimenopausal years, the years leading up to menopause, and they're just like, eh, I've just gained weight because a perimenopause, so it's that blame game, but you know what actually happens is they they've slowed down they're not exercising as much maybe they're busy they've got kids they're navigating jobs families their parents um, and and doing the lion's share of the housework and so there's an imbalance there and so also, they may have emotional issues that they haven't addressed, men and women. And, and that also can lead to emotional eating, especially during a pandemic. So we feel less desirable when we have gained weight or gained weight around the middle, which happens in midlife for men and women. And therefore, you might actually be less interested in sex. And you know what? Somebody might be less interested in sex than with you, <laughs> than you with sex having sex with yourself, which is the safest sex. But nonetheless, um, this is something that uh, you need to address uh, because uh, body image is important uh, as we are sexual beings. And so the challenge is to do what is reasonable, to improve your health and appearance, and then move to embrace and accept yourself as you enter this new phase of life. But it's always great to remain uh, active, busy, eat healthy, of course. And then many times, midlife partners fall out of sync with one another. And it could be because you've been on uh, in a relationship together for a long time. Uh, you may experience a midlife shift in your psyche, and you may also have a shift in your priorities. Maybe your focus is, is not the family anymore so much, but it's your, your finances. And so you're spending lots of time at work. Um, you may actually decide, hey, this is the first time I'm going to address my own needs and my own self-care. I have Jeff on the line from Winnipeg. Hello, Jeff.
6: Hi there. Um, I have a question about uh, being intimate with my partner. Um, Especially since the pandemic, I noticed that I get easily distracted um, when we're being intimate. uh, And I was just wondering if there's anything that can help that.
0: Sure. Um, you know, the first uh, issue is uh, actually recognizing it. That's the first step, and so you, you've done that. Um, how is the other? Uh, how are the other aspects of your life? Are you exercising daily? Are you eating properly? Are you getting enough sleep? Are, are there any unresolved issues in your relationship?
6: No, everything else is pretty pretty normal.
0: Everything is good. So you're obviously there, twenty four seven. Are you Are you engaging in uh, sexual frequency? Is it Is that Has that increased since the pandemic? It has.
6: It has not. Kind of decreased. Oh, it's because of yes.
0: Because of
6: uh, well, I am still working, so I am still leaving the house every day, and uh, that's been stressful. And
0: of course, it just
6: hasn't been happening as often.
0: Right. And so, is there a fear from your partner that? Um, you may, that your partner, whomever that is, may contract uh, the virus from you?
6: No, I don't think so.
0: Okay. So that's not why the, why has the sex decreased?
6: Uh, Just, I guess, anxiety over the whole
0: pandemic thing. Okay. Okay. And so is that yourself? Are you, uh, are you a frontline? Mostly, yes. Mostly yourself. So you're experiencing a bit of anxiety. And that's not unusual. You know, it's very normal. It's happened to a lot of people and, um, it's very, very common. And distraction is certainly a sign of anxiety. And, you know, mindfulness might help you practicing mindfulness every day and especially mindfulness during intimacy can also be helpful. So being in the moment, living in the moment, focusing on your partner. Thank you so much, Jeff, for your question. Yes. I and feel free to leave your information that might help the little sex life as well. Linda from Winnipeg. Hi Linda. Hi. Hi.
2: Hi Maureen.
0: Hi, hi. How are you? Do you have a question for me?
2: I'm wondering how I can get to take a peek at some of these things that you talk about uh, on your
3: program. <laughs>
0: You can actually, for these particular ones, you can go to floravi.com, F L O R A V I.com. Yeah. Or you can go to my website, Maureen McGrath.com, to see the Womenizer, which is another one that I recommend. Oh, okay. Yes. So
2: that one sounds great. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yes, we've reclaimed that word. We've turned pain back into pleasure. We own it now, baby. Thank you so much. <laughs> Kevin, <laughs> Kevin from British Columbia. Hello, Kevin. Hello there, Mary. Uh,
6: I've got a question here. The why does it uh, hit uh, COVID nineteen hit harder on uh, seniors in their homes than in other place in the count in the US? Can't figure that out. It seems to pick on a certain. It seems like it's picking on a certain age, the older people than younger people. Why is that? And, the, why, and the, why does it not hit uh, cats or dogs so much? Like, uh, do they have a different immune system than us?
0: Or Well, I think there has been one or two cats in New York City who have had it, quite frankly. (laughs) Um, And they do recommend that you don't um, touch other people's dogs or... You don't touch their dogs, but that's more in relation to that they can bring it home. Uh, it hits older people for the most part, and I think it's about 80%, in part because older people have weakened immune systems, they have comorbidities. Uh, those who are living in long-term care facilities have access to healthcare workers who have gone from one uh, healthcare facility to another. Uh, the same thing with in-home care. So there might be a caregiver that works for an, an hour in or two hours in one home and then goes to another um, home and works another two hours there. So they may be seeing four to five seniors in a day as well. Um, So it's really around um, the access. uh, So many contributing factors, lack of personal protective equipment, lack of infection control policies and procedures. Um, I mean, it's really a system that has to be revamped. And also men, men are more prone to getting sick with COVID-19 and they also get sicker sooner. And that's because women have the two Chromosomes, so it's uh, uh related to um you know, biology, uh, physiology. So the most important thing to prevent is to stay as healthy as possible, and that's with eating healthy, cutting out on sugar, low carbs, and um high protein, exercising, cutting down on the alcohol. But I think that has is on the rise, <laughs> and if that's on the rise in the pandemic, there's a chance that something else might not be on the rise, my friend. So thanks, Kevin. What's that? that's,
6: probably, that's probably why uh, women uh, uh, last longer in life
0: than men uh, than do. It is. That's exactly why. That's yeah, why. A lot of you, people think it's because men engage in more risky behaviors, but that's not necessarily the reason. Or that's not the theory around that. Thanks so much, Kevin, for you your question. Your, how do you get your name for the draw here? You just give your name to my busy Brendan tonight. He's <laughs> busy taking all of your contact information. Nicole from British Columbia is on the line. Good evening, Nicole.
2: Hi. Um, I was wondering about um, how I would be able to help my family who is extremely anxious about it, but I'm someone who is not quite as anxious about it, and I was wondering how I'd be able to... Calm their anxieties about it
0: well, the one thing is you can never change somebody else. you can change yourself and so but but with given that um, it 's through education really and through information and I think when people have the appropriate information, their fears are reduced or even eliminated, and so looking at the risk factors, looking at the things that they are doing, like social distancing and isolating and washing their hands, making sure they're washing their hands for 20 seconds with soap and warm, at least warm water, as hot as you can tolerate it, for 21 seconds, so sing the happy birthday song recognizing or pointing out that we have actually flattened the curve here that we have a healthcare system that has the capacity to reduce capacity in hospitals so that we are ready in case there was a surge or if there's a surge again and so it's really around uh, and also demonstrating when they see that your come or you're not worried about it, you know, uh, that may be helpful for them as well. But just recognizing that you can't change them um, and, and people have to process their feelings and that their feelings are valid. So many people are feeling anxiety in, in this pandemic, but anxiety is contagious. And so I do understand why um, it's maybe challenging for you. Thank you. <laughs> You're very welcome. And enter your name into our little contest <laughs> for the uh, fabulous little prizes, the massagers the uh, by Floravi. We have Rose and Dahlia. So we've had lots of uh, people calling in. It's not too late for you to call in with your great question. Of course, the segment is practically over, um, but I did want to, I was talking about the issues. One of the biggest issues at midlife is um, low libido, loss of libido, so common in women, especially as they go enter the perimenopausal years and the menopausal years and beyond, but this also can happen for men. And I think there's a lot of confusion out there that many people uh, believe that men can't have low sexual desire, that that's all that men want is sex. Well, that's not necessarily true. Um, hormones are one of the reasons that sexual desire fluctuates. Life as well. Fatigue. Um, and, and also at this time, at this midlife, Keep in mind some people may have a consistent or even increased libido and this may pose problems to those whose partner is unavailable or disinterested or to those who have no partner because of divorce or breakup or death.